So good to see you guys, Calvary Chapel Vista. So fun to be back with you this morning. For those of you that started to come to this church in the last two years, you have no idea who I am, but uh, I spent the better part of 12 years working here at Calvary Chapel Vista. First time as a youth pastor many, many moons ago, and then uh, just over two years ago, five more years back here at this church uh, as uh, one, of the, one of the teaching pastors and just coming alongside Pastor Rob, and it's just, it's just a blessing for my family and I to, to, to visit here this weekend and be with you guys, and uh, I'm excited to get into the Word with you. I know you already have a Bible, so turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read a little bit of the chapter here. And we'll break it down together. Verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and put away the gods, the foreign gods, and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your heart for the Lord, and serve him only, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Father, I thank you so much for the great privilege it is for my family and I to spend this Sunday with this church where, Lord, for so many years we were poured into and we got the blessed opportunity to pour out. And I pray, Lord, today, we pray for Pastor Rob and Denise that you would minister to them as they're over there in Ireland, use them, get them back here safely. But we pray, Lord, today that you would be our teacher that you would speak to us. Lord, you know every one of us. You know what we're facing. You know what we're up against. And I pray 
that we would hear your voice speaking to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the bummer thing about having a guest speaker is he doesn't pick up where Pastor Rob left off last week. And I know you guys get a company to the last, the last thing that Pastor Rob is talking about is the first thing he's going to be talking about the next week. And I, I like the system. I grew up in the system. And then some guest speaker shows up. And he pulls some random passage out of a random book you're not currently studying and just expects you to be right on board with it happening all in the context of the, of the word there. Well, since I know you feel that way a little bit, let's get to the context of what 1 Samuel chapter 7 is really all about. It's a low moment in the nation of Israel's history as the chapter opens, Most of you Bible students know that for the last couple hundred years in Israel's history before 1 Samuel chapter 7, there was the book of Judges, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, not according to what God said was right, not according to God's word, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes, and the problem was just chaos resulted, because even though the great theologian Snow White tells you to follow your heart, that is never a good idea. We're to follow the word of God and the principles of God, and the children of Israel weren't, and it was miserable for them. And as we come here to the first part of 1 Samuel, God would raise up nation after nation to come against the nation of Israel, not because he hated them, not because he was against them, but as a loving father, he'd create chaos with his people so that they would cry out to him, so they would see their need for him, and they would cry out and get right with God again. And as 1 Samuel opens, those people that God is raising up to cause chaos in the nation of Israel are the Philistines. These Philistines were dominating the Israelites at this time. And again, in in chapter five, the Philistines come for battle. They're gonna destroy the nation of Israel and Israel isn't walking with God and so they go out to battle without the presence of God. But, but, But someone figures we can bring in the ark. Apparently, somebody got a 3,000-year early release copy of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So they figured if we bring the ark in and we lift up the lid, that weird stuff's going to fly out of the ark, and all of a sudden, we're going to have our victory. Well, obviously, they didn't have an early release copy, and it didn't work because without the Lord, the ark was just a bunch of golden wood. God wasn't with them because they weren't walking with God. And so they were defeated that day and they lost the ark. And though you guys know, chapter five and six, God says, hey, my people might be weak, but you don't know who their God is. And God stands up himself to the Philistines and they get the ark of God back into Israel. But as they're sitting there, yes, they have their ark, but they just were defeated in battle and they're feeling like, Lord, will we ever be the nation that you promised that we would be? Will we ever have victory over our enemies? And I I bring that up to you. I mention that to you because maybe, maybe you feel that way in your Christianity. Will I ever be the Christian God wants me to be? You've gotten saved. You've given your life to the Lord. You're walking with him, but, but then your flesh rises up and it tears you down again. And then you repent and you start to do well. And then the flesh rises up again and you think, when am I ever gonna have victory? When am I ever gonna be the man or the woman God is calling me to be? Well, in chapter seven, I think we have an answer to that. 
Because Samuel, their first real prophet, he gets the nation together and he preaches them to this sermon that we just read a few moments ago. And in that sermon, he gives to them seven elements of victory. And if you have a notebook, I want you to write these things down today. I want you to pray them in and think them through because I think they have the great potential to produce victory in our lives as well, to give us the victory we need over our enemy and our flesh that rises its ugly head on a a regular basis in our lives. So if you're writing these things down, number one, get on that notebook, get in that list. Number one, there in verse three, I'm just going to have you look down at it again and find it, look in the text when I'm starting to bore you. It says there in verse three, the first thing they were to do is return to the Lord. The first element of victory, the first thing that would lead them to become the nation that they knew they were supposed to be is they needed to return to the Lord. You see, sometimes in our walks, we think, where did God go? Where did he go? It seemed like we used to be so close. There used to be such intimacy and worship. And now, where did he go? But you're theologically mature enough to know God hasn't gone anywhere. It's you and me that leave. We leave the fundamentals that were so key in us growing with the Lord and walking with the Lord. And it's we that need to return. It's we that need to get back to the place where we are deeply in love with Jesus Christ again. In Revelation chapter two, Jesus' words to the church of Ephesus, they had fallen. They had fallen from their first love. They had in time past been so intimate, so close with the Lord. And when God speaks to them in Revelation chapter two, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. He doesn't say with them that, that, that I, you've hurt my feelings so badly. That's how we would respond if someone treated us like we treat God all the time. But God doesn't say that. He says to them, verse will be up on the screen. He says to them, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says to them, get back to what you were doing before. Remember from where you have fallen and repeat those things again. You see, if you can remember a time in your life when you were more on fire with the Lord, when it seemed like there was intimacy and passion and obedience and submission in your heart and life, if you're not there right now, God's word to you is not, he's frustrated with you. It's not that he's done with you. He says, get back to doing those things again. Get back to that time. For me, probably my greatest time of revival in my life was my first semester of Bible college. It was a huge moment of surrender for me, of all that I thought I was going to be, just surrender to him, all this new possibility of maybe who I was going to be. And I was in the word every single day. I was taking walks with God in the woods, just pouring out my heart about what he was doing with me and what I was doing with him. And it just seemed like he was so close. I could sense him. And in the times of my quote-unquote mature Christianity today, if I start to feel dry, that's what I do is I think, Lord, am I doing those things again? Am I willing to surrender big things to you? Am Am I taking time not just to read your word, but be in your word? Let it get into my heart and get into my life. Am I taking a walk with you and just pouring out my heart? Lord, is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm doing? And if not, I need to get back to when it was last good between me and Jesus. 
Number one, we need to return to the Lord. Secondly, secondly, Samuel also tells them there in verse three, he tells them to put away the foreign gods. When we decide, I want victory over my flesh, it starts by you and I returning to the Lord. That's good. That's where it starts. But then we need to do some self-inventory and say, God, what has taken your place in my heart? What am I thinking about? What am I meditating on? What is, what is the passion of my heart and my life at this moment? And when we figure that out, that thing also now needs to be put down. Jesus said of you and me, he said, you cannot serve two masters. And some of us think, well, I can. I'm a great multitasker. I can juggle and eat at the same time. Well, whoop-dee-doo. The great, I'm glad you can. You still can't serve two masters. You can't do it. Either God will dominate your heart or something else will dominate your heart. And I'm not saying you're not saved. Jesus isn't saying you're not going to heaven. He's just saying only one thing can dominate your heart at a time. And if it's not the Lord, it is something else. And that something else needs to be put down. And so we do need to have some some self-inventory and say, Lord, what am I really pursuing? What really has my affection? What am I thinking about when my mind begins to wander? And Whatever that thing is, it has taken the place of God in your heart and it needs to be repented of. And notice with me, if you would there in verse three, that Samuel actually calls out one particular false idol. Oh, there were many things that the Jews were worshiping instead of God. But Samuel feels led by the Lord in his sermon to emphasize one false god, and that is, verse three, it says it, Ashtoreth. The false god Ashtoreth. Now, you're a well-taught congregation, so you know the, the Canaanite cultures of 1500 BC. They worshiped primarily two gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. And Baal was the god of the weather and the god of the crops, and you would worship Baal in order to have a bumper crop. And so it was really the god of prosperity. You worship Baal so your crops would grow, so the income would boost. It would be this, this drive of worshiping prosperity. Ashtoreth was Baal's wife. And she, as most of you know, was the goddess of sensual pleasure. And you would worship her with all of these deviant sexual behaviors. And Samuel fills an impression from the Lord to lift up this one false idol because he knew his culture needed to hear it. His culture needed to repent of it. And I think our culture needs to hear it too. The worship of the sensual is so prominent in our sensory-driven world. And yes, that certainly applies to sexual sin with the, with the dominant hold that pornography has on so many. It's ripping you off and it needs to be put down. How marriages are getting ripped apart with, with adultery, with, with open marriages, with even stuff we're watching on TV together. It needs to be taken before the Lord and repented of, but it's not, it's not just sexual sin that is the worship of the sensual. The overemphasis every day that some of us have about being obsessed of how we look, that's huge. Being obsessed by how we look in the car that we drive. Being obsessed by what our homes look like, what the view outside the windows of our homes look like. That too is the worship of the sensual and it needs to be repented of. 
Whatever has taken the place of God in your heart, it needs to be identified and it needs to be repented of. There's nothing wrong with being healthy and looking good. If you can do that, God bless you. There's nothing wrong with having things if God has blessed you with things, but when anything takes the place of God in our heart, we must identify it and we must repent of it. The road to victory, number one, is to return to the Lord. Secondly, it's to put away the foreign gods, to put away those things that have taken his place on our heart. Thirdly, still in verse three, still in verse three, Samuel mentions you need to prepare your hearts for the Lord. He tells them you've got to prepare your heart to seek the Lord. You know, if you're still reading through the one-year Bible, that's the plan you have. I hope you're all reading through your Bible in some form or fashion. But if you're reading through the Bible with the one-year Bible, we just, we're in Nehemiah now, we just read First and Second Kings. And it's like, you know the end of the story before the chapter ends. It says, this king walked in the ways of his father David. And you know what the rest of the chapter is going to be like. It's going to be prosperity. It's going to be blessings. God's going to reward them. But if the first verse is, he did not do what his father David did, you know what the rest of the chapter is going to be like. It's going to be affliction. It's going to be bondage. People are going to die. It's going to be a terrible chapter. But what we often miss is it says about each of those kings, the ones that did what their father David did, they prepared their hearts to seek the Lord. And those that didn't, like Manasseh, they did not prepare the hearts to seek the Lord. Hezekiah did. Josiah did. These guys wanted to seek the Lord and they got themselves ready to seek the Lord. And the reason that is so important is sometimes we imagine this ancient Jewish culture where all they did is run around and worship Baal and worship Ashtoreth and worship Molech and there was no thought of God in their mind and precious men and women, nothing could be further than the truth. Especially when you get closer to the times of David, God was on their thoughts all the, all the time. The young kids were learned, were, were, were taught the Torah. They would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God was constantly on their national thought. And, and I want you to see that because it's very similar to the world we live in. Well, I know we're moving away from that rapidly as a country. But in a general sense, we still consider ourselves a Christian nation. We put on our money and God we trust. All of our leaders, no matter what branch of government they come from, oh, God bless America. The latest Barna survey says that 75% of Americans believe in heaven and believe they're going to go there. Isn't that reassuring to know you live in a country where 75% of people around you are born again, on fire believers? You're laughing because it's crazy. It's not true. They think they're going to heaven. They believe they're going to heaven, but they're not going to heaven. But what does that show you? God is on the national conscience. The actor gets up and wins his, his, you know, his, his, his Emmy award or whatever it is, and he says, thank God. And I think, thank the Lord? I can't even watch the movies you're in. Are you sure you want to thank the Lord? Because I don't think the Lord had anything to do with that movie you were in. But they just say it. They say it. And here's why this is so important, especially for those of you and I who take a Sunday morning to come to church. God's on our mind. God's on our thoughts. And if we're not careful, we will just go through the motions every single day. I read my Bible every single day. Every single day. But I gotta admit to you, there are days where I open up the Bible and I start reading and I'm thinking, what verse, what verse am I gonna emphasize on for Duff's 
daily digital vlog that's now out there that like two of you follow. Anyways, but, but what verse is that that I, that I need to put out there? And, and I've read for a half an hour and, and the reality is I haven't read anything for myself. I'm reading, I'm reading for the Garden Fellowship. I'm reading for anybody else that's following along with what I've got to say. I can, I can go throughout my day and I think, well, a Christian, it's, it's what I do. And so who am I going to pray for today? And who am I going to meet with today? And yet, friends, the reality is I need to read the Bible because God wants to speak to me. Listen, it's one of my jobs to take God's word and speak it in other people's lives. And I love that it's my job. But the reality is I need to hear God just as much as you need to hear God. And a Christian is not something we do. It is something we are. And so we go throughout our day. It's not just going through the motions. It's God, I need to hear from you today. God, I want to be your hands and your feet today. And as we come with this intentionality saying, God, I want to hear from your word. I want to be used of you. I'm preparing my heart for the Lord. It is so much harder then to just get to the motions. And to miss Jesus in all of that. If we want to have victory over our sin, we need to return to the Lord. We need to put away the foreign gods. We need to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. And you say, well, I'm trying all of that. And I just fail over and over again. Well, the fourth thing that Samuel mentions, the fourth thing the Holy Spirit seems to prompt, to put out and and, and share with us, is that they fasted in verses 5 and 6. They what? That's what your sermon's on today? But I want an egg sandwich after the service is over. I want a donut. (laughs) Why are you going to talk to us about fasting? Fasting is strange. Especially for those of us who understand that our relationship with God is based on grace. Do you know Jesus loves you just because he loves you? Do you know that he's for you just because he's for you? That no amount of Bible reading or church attendance, oh, that stuff's good for you. It's really good for you. It's really helpful for you, your marriage, your family, your singleness. But God doesn't love you more because you came to church. God just plain old loves you because he does. Isn't that a radical truth? I know you're not a Pentecostal church, but can I ask that again? Is that not a radical truth? Yes, it is. It's a radical truth that God just plain old loves you. He just loves you. Now, because we know that, I know you know that, then we read verses about fasting. Every once in a while, we hear a a sermon where fasting is mentioned. And we think, isn't that kind of medieval? It's like those believers 500 years ago that would beat themselves to get God's favor. They'd climb up stairs on their knees till their knees were bloody and they would do this somehow earn God's love. And we think, well, that was theologically inaccurate and kind of blasphemous. So I don't want to do things to try to earn God's love. So why would I ever fast? That sounds terrible. That sounds terrible. Why would I fast? I love food. I mean, isn't that what Christianity is all about? Food and fellowship. It's like the definition I love Jesus, so I eat food with other people and have a good time. That's what I do. Why would I fast? Why would I fast? Because every time it's mentioned in the scripture, it's somehow tied in to having victory over your flesh. Jesus, in Matthew 17, he was coming against a boy that was demon-possessed, and his disciples tried, and they couldn't. 
And Jesus then encounters the boy. He helps the boy. The boy has victory over the enemy. And the disciples, after the encounter, they ask Jesus, why? Why could we not have victory over this evil in this boy's heart? And Jesus answers him toward the end of the chapter. He says, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, he adds, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus says, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. And people say, what is he talking about? Scholars argue, because that's what scholars do. Some say it's the faith that you need to have to overcome evil. Some say it's the particular type of demon, the prayer and fasting demon, the PF demon, whatever it might be, that they had to come against. And and they argue about what it is, but the point is that doesn't matter. What Jesus is saying is there are things you are going to face in your life that you don't have the strength in your flesh to deal with. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, You need a lifestyle of prayer and fasting occasionally because in fasting, you learn to say no to your flesh. And if you've ever done it, even for a day, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You hear a sermon, you think, all right, I'm gonna do this. Well, not today because I wanna have a donut. Tomorrow I'm going out to dinner with him. Tuesday, Tuesday, Lord. Tuesday, I'm gonna fast. Tuesday's gonna be the day. And you make a determination. Sundown to sundown, Monday night to Tuesday night, I'm gonna fast. That's what I'm gonna do. If you're like me, you make this determination. The minute you get up, you forget. And you go down and you make your big bowl of Cheerios and you get the eggs out of the refrigerator. And right about the time you're making breakfast, the Holy Spirit says to your spirit, uh... Weren't you supposed to be fasting? And then I remember, and then I'm angry. What? What kind of legalistic relationship with God is this? This is terrible. I start remembering verses like, this is not the fast that I have determined for you. Yes, Lord, that's my verse. That's my life verse today. This is not the fast. But then out of obedience, I put the Cheerios back into the box throw the eggs into the fridge. I don't know what they did, but I'm mad because my flesh is angry. My flesh loves food. It loves it. And if you've ever done this, you know, I mean, there are days where you get up and you're busy and you get to work or go to school. You don't get to eat till noon or two o'clock and it doesn't even phase you. But if you're determined to fast, every single moment you're reminded, oh, this is terrible. This is the worst experience of my life. What are you doing? It's hurt so bad because your flesh is crying out. Your flesh is saying, feed me. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I desire. And I have found, and maybe you have too, that when you learn to say no to your flesh with something it needs, like food for a day or two, it becomes a lot easier to learn to say no to your flesh for something it doesn't need, like bitterness, like unforgiveness like lust, like pride. And I find it so interesting that the Holy Spirit finds it necessary in this discussion about revival in the nation of Israel to point out that they return to the Lord, they put away their foreign gods, they they prepared their hearts to seek the Lord, and yes, they even took a day to fast, to learn to say no 
to their flesh. But then I want you to notice verse seven. Look with me if you would at verse seven. Israel is having a revival. The first time in literally hundreds of years that they're coming back to walk with the Lord again after the dark times of the book of Judges. And it says in verse seven, now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Israel's having a revival. For almost 400 years, they had been in this time frame where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and it's just problem after problem after problem. There would be pockets of of repentance and pockets of revival. But here they are as a nation for the first time in hundreds of years. That's a long time. Getting right with God. God is in their midst. God's speaking to them through the prophet Samuel. And you know who doesn't care that they're having a revival? The Philistines don't care. The Philistines think, great, they've put their swords down and they're going to Mizpah to have a little, have a little worship God session. Perfect. We'll show up to Mizpah and we will wipe them out completely. The Philistines don't care about their revival. And I mention that to you because I hear all the time as a pastor, pastor, I'm trying. I'm, I'm reading my Bible every single day. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm coming to church on a regular basis. I even come on Wednesdays. I come on Wednesdays. And yet, the enemy is still attacking my marriage. The enemy is still attacking my kids. The enemy is still attacking me, trying to get me to fall over and over again. Why does the enemy keep doing this? Because the enemy hates you. He hates you. He doesn't want you to have a revival He doesn't like it that you're coming to church and he wants to do things to discourage you so you will shake your fist at the heavens and say, if this is how you treat people that love you, I'm done. The enemy will come against you as you're trying to have a revival. He won't leave you alone. I know of what I speak. It's two years ago this week that I left this fellowship. Two years ago this week. And I hope you know, we didn't leave Calvary Vista because we didn't like Calvary Vista. This was the church I first was on staff as a pastor, where I learned everything about ministry and loving on people. And most of you in the room have taught me more than I know I could have ever taught you from just friendships and pouring into me. And this is where I grew up in the Lord. I loved living in North, I loved living in North County. I really did. I knew God was calling us to move out to the Garden Fellowship. And I was being obedient to the Lord. Now, God has been so gracious. We love it there. We really do. We love being where God has had us. And I love this congregation God has made me a part of. And, and, and a church that, that, that didn't really have a pastor. And, and God has done so many great things over the past two years. But the enemy has not left me alone. Because the minute, almost the minute I leave here, I'm teaching the word on a Wednesday night like I used to do here. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm trying to read the Bible and I can't, I can't read the Bible anymore. 
And it's not because I, you know, like, I just went, duh. Like, that's not, it's not, it's not that I, I didn't understand it. I, I couldn't see it anymore. I know some of you are saying, we listened to you for three years. You can't read the Bible anyways. I, I know. I know I have trouble with some of the names of these Canaanite kings and peoples. But, but I couldn't read words like the and Lord and Philistine that I do know really well. And I, and I went to the doctor because I figured I'm, I'm almost 40 and maybe I'm just getting old. I mean, that's, I've heard it happens to some of you and, you know, you're starting to join your, I'm starting to join your club and so here we are. It's just, this is what happens. You get old, you can't, can't read anymore. That's, just, that's what happens. So I went in, they, they did all these tests and the doctor looked in my eye and he goes, oh, it's never good when a doctor looks at a part of your body and says, ooh, oh, and that doctor said, it's not age. Veins have grown into your retina. They're ripping it apart. And I'm going to try all I can for you not to be blind. And the next few months was injections in the eye every couple of weeks. Then surgery, which if this was a youth camp, I would get very descriptive in the next few minutes. Your kids, ask them about it. They've heard the story. But let's just make it Sunday morning Compatible here right now to tell you they I woke up with them strapped my head in a chair and for the first time in my life I'm looking up at the ceiling at the same time down at the floor because they've removed my eye from my head and for the first time in my life I'm a lizard I'm looking in two different places (laughs) at the same time and I'm awake during the procedure because you have to be awake for your retina to respond the way it's supposed to respond it was terrible. It was really terrible. It was terrible. But they fixed my left eye. Praise the Lord. Glory. Hallelujah. Oh, wait, wait, just wait. Hold your applause for just a moment. <laughs> I'm not wearing glasses today because I'm trying to look intellectual for you. Yes, in the last two years, I moved to the desert, finished my master's, and now I'm really smart. That's, that's, not, that's not it. The reality was, in May of this year, I was going to Yosemite to take three days to fast and pray. I was going to have a revival like we're reading about in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And as I'm driving up the 99 for a couple days to get away and fast and pray, all of a sudden my right eye, the other eye, just went black. And I thought, what is going on? And I pulled in and the doctor looked and said, well, what happened in the left is now happening in the right. So they've been injecting needles into my right eye now. And they're not helping, so surgery will be again. And I tell you this story for two reasons. One, to kind of garner 1,200 more prayers. That would be awesome. That's always good. But also to tell you, the enemy doesn't care about what good things God is doing in your life. The enemy doesn't care. And, there's, and you're not alone. It's not like you're the only one he's afflicting. You're the only one he's after. Your marriage is the only one he's trying to get in between. No, you're not. You're normal. You're normal. God loves you. You're saved by the blood of Jesus. The enemy hates you, and he continually attacks you. That's what we need to know, that the enemy is going to keep attacking. Well, what do I do then if the enemy is going to keep attacking? Well, the fifth thing on our list, what we read there in in verses verses 5 to 7 right there, we read, uh, sorry, 7 to 8, the next thing we see is while the enemy is attacking, the people turn to their man Samuel and say, pray for us. 
Pray for us. Yes, we need to return to the Lord. Yes, we need to put away the foreign gods. Yes, we need to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. Yes, we need a season every once in a while of taking a day or two or three and learning to fast, learning to say no to our flesh. But we also need men and women who will pray for us when the enemy is attacking. Christianity was never meant to be lived out alone. It never was. And you men, listen to me men, you need two or three other guys that you let be honest with you and that you are honest with. You women need two or three girls that you can talk to that you will be able to listen to and and heed their advice and have them pray for you as you pray for them. Now, I know I'm mostly speaking to the guys here with this because most of you girls are like, I've got 40 of those. (laughs) Awesome. Good for you, girls. There's 65 girls. I let into my heart. Awesome. It's us men who say, I'm a rock. I'm an island. No one touches me and I touch no one. (laughs) I know what that feels to feel that way. But if you're walking down that road, guys, you're being a fool. You really are. We need people that will say, hey, how is your marriage? How can I pray for your marriage? And a guy that we don't keep at arm's length, but someone that we're honest with, that we talk to and say, here's what's going on in my heart and life. How can I pray for you? What's going on with you? Listen, guys, we're not gonna suddenly become women. I'm not saying that suddenly we go, how's your heart? Oh, it's great. Speak to me. Like that's, that's never gonna happen. Your wife wants it to happen. It's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. But you still need a few guys to speak into your life. You need it. You need it. Paul, when he's talking to the Ephesians church about the armor of God, he says there in chapter six, verse will be up on the screen. He says, above all, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We're to take up the shield of faith. Now, what is not so clear to you and me, because we live in, you live in North County, San Diego and not first century Rome. What would have been really clear to them, whether they lived in Ephesus or Rome, the minute they heard take up the shield, they would have known something that we need to be told. And that is a common first century Roman shield was designed to interlock with the shield of the soldier to your right and to your left. So when you would lift up that shield, you would lift it up with another soldier, with another man, and you would form this wall. And with this wall, they knew there was nothing that could stand against them. That the fiery darts of the wicked one, you will be able to quench. Not you might. And men, and I know you ladies too, but you seem to do this a little bit more readily than us guys. When we lift up our shield with another guy, with another gal, gals, you will quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. You will. We need each other desperately. We need to return to the Lord. We need to lay down our foreign gods. We need to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. We need to to be able to fast on occasion. We need to take the time to be intentional about other people and having a relationship with them where they speak into us and we can speak into them. 
But above even that, look at verse 9 and 11. 9 through 11. Look at what Samuel's doing as the nation of the Philistines are closing in. Talk about a cool cat, this guy Samuel. You think about it. You're on a hill having a revival. You're praying, seeking the Lord. There's an enemy with swords and clubs surrounding that little mountain that they're on. Everybody's panicking but Samuel. What's he doing? He's grabbing a lamb. He's offering a sacrifice. Why is he doing that? Because Samuel knows something we must know. We have to know before we're done here today. And that is that all this stuff that we do to get victory is very awesome and very important. But no victory will ever be won without the precious blood of the lamb. And Samuel knows that victory for them is not about manning the guns. It isn't about getting on the wall. For Samuel, what he knows is, I've got to offer this lamb. Because it's not about a box and it's not about a military strategy. It is about the nation of Israel, God's people, walking with God. And if they are walking God, walking with God, there is not a nation on this earth that can stand against them. That's what Samuel knew. And what I hope you know, please hear me, is that when it comes to victory in your life over your spiritual enemies that you're facing, it's not about how hard you train. It's not about having a strategy to come about it. It's about you walking with Jesus Christ. Because you see, if you're walking with Jesus Christ, there is no tool of the enemy that will be able to stand against Jesus working through you. Because the battle's been won. You see, in 33 AD, there was a battle being waged there on Calvary's hill where all of my sin and all of my shame and all of your sin and all of your shame was poured out upon Jesus Christ. Every wrong thing I have ever done, every wrong thing you have ever done. And as he stood there and he took my sin and your sin and our shame and our punishment, no doubt the enemy was there thinking, I might still be able to have a victory. If I can make this so terrible for him, if I can make this experience so awful, maybe, maybe Jesus will cry out no more. Maybe he'll cry out no more and come down from that cross and victory will be mine. But you know what I know. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did not cry out no more. He cried out, it is finished. And my sin... And your shame was finished there on the cross. Every wrong thing that we have ever done was finished there on the cross. And you need to know that because when the enemy comes with his condemnation and he speaks into your ear, this is who you are. This is what you've done. You need to remember and you need to tell him, this is not who I am. I'm a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away. All things have become new because my victory is not based on my performance. It is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. As I learned from your pastor, Pastor Rob, we fight from victory, not for victory because the battles are to be won. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Amen. Well, last thing here today, number seven. Yeah, we return to the Lord. We put away the foreign gods. We prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. It's good to, on occasion, have a day or two or three to fast. It's really important to have another person you can have pray for you. 
hold you accountable, you allow into your heart, into your mind. It's really important we remember the battle's the Lord's. And when the Lord wins that victory, and he will, it's important we do what they did in verses 13 and 14. They raised up a memorial stone. Samuel, after God wins the victory, and he does, thunder comes down. Josephus says that when the thunder came down, that's a historian, it's not in the Bible if you're looking for the story, that when, that when the thunder came down, the, the mountain opened up and the Philistine army was swallowed up. The thunder, the lightning came down and it lit the bushes on fire and they were just, as it does say in the Bible, they were confused and confounded and Israel just won. God showed up that day. And after God showed up that day, Samuel wisely said, we need to put up a memorial stone. And they called it Ebenezer. That's important to know in your Christianity, by the way. Because we all have that favorite song, right? Come thou fount. And there's that line in Come Thou Fount where we say, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And most of us have no idea what we're singing. We think, Here I raise my Ebenezer. What does Scrooge have to do with this song? I don't understand. I just don't. I don't get what DuckTales has to do with this hymn that I'm singing this morning. It doesn't have anything to do with Ebenezer Scrooge. It has nothing to do with DuckTales. It has everything to do with 1 Samuel chapter 7. Because the word Ebenezer, it means, it means the stone of help or the stone of remembrance of the help that God has given us. Samuel has the children of Israel raise up this stone to remind them God has been with us through thick and thin. And as we want to have victory in our lives, as we want to become the men and women that God paid his precious blood for us to be, even in this life, I know someday we get to heaven and our sin nature will be gone. Glory, hallelujah. But in this life, he wants you to have victory. In this life, he wants you to mature and grow. And when we do have little victory after little victory, we need a memorial in our lives. Whether we write it in a journal, I never thought I would get out of that financial jam, and here's what God did. Oh, I never thought this marital trouble would be fixed, but here's what God did. I never thought that I would see again, and here's what God did. It's so good for us to have a memorial that we write in a journal, you creative types, you write a poem or a song, the rest of us will just write a sentence. And as we write these things down, it is so good for us. And you know why it's good for us? Because the storm clouds will gather again. They will gather again. That's the terrible thing about life, isn't it? Someday Jesus will come and our problems and our problems will be over. <laughs> Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, hmm, trials just seem to keep coming, don't they? And when the storm clouds gather again, and they will, unfortunately... I need, you need, we need an Ebenezer to look down and say, God, you were faithful to me a year ago when I was facing this. And you were faithful to me five years ago when I faced this. And why that's so good to have is here's the difference about God from you and me. There's a lot of differences. But you and I change all the time. Sometimes for the better, that's good. But we change all the time. We have ebbs and flows of our life isn't it reassuring that he never does? That he's faithful. Always has been, always will be. He's faithful. Meaning, when I read of God's faithfulness to me and to you in the past, 
It is the greatest evidence that he will be faithful in what you are facing today. And we need that encouragement. We need that reminder. We need that Ebenezer. Yes, I need to return to the Lord. And yes, I've got to put away the foreign gods. And I need to prepare my heart to seek the Lord and fast and be intentional about having relationships. I've got to remember the victory is the Lord's. And when the trials come again, I realize I can keep clinging to him because he is down old, plain old good. He always has been and he always will be because his name is Jesus and there's no one like him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now before... I pray and the worship team comes back out. I want to let you know, we have a table out front. Since I left you guys, I now have two books. The first one was sold here a lot. People were buying it today and I'm like, I guess once you leave, oh, I like your book now. But anyways, um, so I think there's only like five or six copies left of the first one, but Dave and Marianne can get you those. They're easy. You can get them on Amazon. But we have a bunch left of the new book that came out. It's called Groundwork. And the purpose of this book is simply this. The first chapter is about why would I believe in a God? I mean, people ask us that all the time. Why would an intelligent person in this world ever believe that there's a God? Chapter one is a defense for why we believe in God. It might be good to give to an unbeliever that has questions about God. The second chapter, though, is now that I believe that there's a God, why would I believe the Bible is telling me the truth about that God? Because there are 27 books that man considers religious. So why is the Bible right and not the Bhagavad Gita, the book that the Hindus have? Why, why is the Bible right and the Quran is not? Why is that? And so the second chapter is why you would trust the Bible and how we got the Bible. How did, how did the Bible go from Moses to you know, the manuscripts that were copied to the English or the Spanish Bible you have right in front of you? How did, how did that process work? Well, the second chapter outlines all of that. And then, once we believe there's an intelligent reason to believe in God, and there's really intelligent reasons to believe the Bible is telling us the truth about God, then the rest of the book is about what does the Bible teach us about that God? Who is God the Father? How do we know that Jesus is also God? How do you ever explain the Trinity? What about hell? There's so many questions about hell today. Is it a real place? Is it really forever? That doesn't sound like, like God's character. What about that? Can just anybody be saved or is it only a select few? And the rest of the book kind of answers those kind of questions. So if you want to pick it up, it's there. Except cash, credit card, your firstborn child, anything like that uh, is a payment for that. But uh, God bless you guys. I want to say this in closing. Thank you for pouring into my family for 12 years. I am really thankful for you guys. I know I appreciate the applause and I, I, I love you guys so much, but I wanted to tell you thank, thank you because there's many faces that I see in this room right now that you poured into me and my family. If you're new at this church, it's a good place to be. You keep letting these men and women pour into you and shape you because they're people that love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Father, thank you for the family at Calvary Chapel Vista. And I pray that you continue to pour out your spirit here. I pray for Pastor Rob and, and Denise and I pray that you protect their marriage. I pray that you'd give them every spiritual gift they need to continue to lead this fellowship everywhere you want it to go. 
I thank you for the great team of men and women that serve here and the friends of mine, and I pray you continue to use them and use them in these precious men and women's lives. And I'm thankful for them, for many of them that that have meant so much to me over the years in making me and shaping me who you, God, by your grace, have allowed me to become. And I'm thankful for them. And I pray you continue to bless them. And may this be a place where young men and women, like, like young men like I used to be, can get raised up and sent out that the gospel of Jesus Christ can continue to go to every corner of this world. God, thank you so much for what you're doing here and what you continue to do here. Bless these precious men and women, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.